Good morning. Today's text is out of Matthew 13, 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and the great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some of the seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of the soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell along thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. We are continuing in our series entitled Your Kingdom Come. We are uh, moving through Matthew 13. From now on, this is what the series is going to look like. We're going to be moving through Matthew chapter 13, which is the parable discourse in the book of Matthew. This is a recording of Jesus' parables that he said in order to better describe the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we started our series by looking at the ascension which is Jesus rising into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, one of the ways that we see that Jesus is the reigning king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and so Jesus truly is our king. In Jesus' ministry, throughout his, well, throughout his ministry, Jesus says that he is constantly proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He's always talking about the kingdom. And yet, the strange thing is, many of us can describe the gospel, this most important story of our faith, and we can describe the entire gospel without ever once mentioning the kingdom. It seems as though these stories are almost two totally different things. There's the story of how Jesus saves us, and then there's the story of Jesus as the king. Yet, when we see Jesus' whole ministry, his saving us, his ascending to the throne, his preaching ministry, these are all about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom all the time. Last week we saw how Jesus calls us to bear witness to his kingdom. And we got to talk about Lord of the Rings, and it was super fun. So you should check out the podcast. Um, but we are, uh, we're called as his church to bear witness to his kingdom. And yet many of us don't know what that is or how to bear witness to it. What does it mean that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is coming? In order to bear witness to it, we need to explore what it is. So we're spending time in these parables that Jesus uses to describe what exactly is the kingdom of heaven. The parable that we're looking at this morning is uh, an extremely familiar one. It's one that's one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's the first parable in Matthew. It kicks off the whole parable thing. And Uh, What we're going to be looking at this morning is three aspects of this. We're going to be looking at the purpose of parables. So that is, why does Jesus speak in parables? Then we're going to be looking at our response to parables. Jesus describes two responses to these parables. And then we're going to see how these parables are about understanding the kingdom. So the purpose, the response, and our understanding. The parable discourse starts off with Jesus walking out of the house. He's met by a big crowd, and so he goes and he sits in a boat. That way he can have a place to teach from in this sort of bay, amphitheater-like space on the Sea of Galilee. And he just begins by moving into this familiar parable, which describes a sower taking his seed and just sowing it, scattering it along the ground. And the seed lands in four different places. In one place, it just lands on the path and is snatched up by birds. In another place, it grows up quickly, but it doesn't have a depth of soil, and so it's scorched by the sun. In another place, it falls among weeds and is choked out. And then finally, it lands in good soil and bears this incredible fruit. 
that parable at first glance, without any context, which Jesus doesn't seem to provide any context for this parable, it, it doesn't really give us much to grab onto. It's just a story about seeds and a normal phenomenon with farming. So the disciples, they ask this strange question to, well, excuse me, it's not even a strange question. As we move into the purpose of the parables, the disciples ask him after he tells the story, he says, they say, why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to the crowds in these parables? And yet when we're together, we seem to kind of, we just talk. And then all of a sudden, when you're in a crowd, you tell these parables. See, we can often miss uh, just how strange these parables were and how difficult to understand they might have been upon first hearing. Because when we hear the parable of the sower, we're so familiar with its interpretation. This parable has become so famous, and our understanding of it is... uh, as Jesus explains it, we're so familiar with that we barely even hear the original parable. We barely even hear a sower goes out to sow. We pretty much just hear straight through to the metaphor of Jesus goes to preach the kingdom of God. And the soil, we don't even really hear soil. We just hear these are the conditions of the hearts that the word falls upon. We're able to hear straight through the metaphor right to what the metaphor is pointing to. But if we look at the parable itself, it doesn't really provide us much to go on. Jesus doesn't really hint at the seed being his word. He doesn't really hint at the soil being the hearts of people. And so the disciples' question is actually a really important one. Say, why do you speak to them in parables? I think because we're so familiar And because we have such a clear understanding of the interpretation of a parable like this, we already have an answer to that question sort of queued up in our minds. If somebody were to ask us, hey, why did Jesus speak in parables? We'd probably say something like, well, parables are great stories that illustrate these incredible truths. And in order to make those truths tangible and more accessible and easier to understand, Jesus spoke them in parables so that people would be more able to grasp what he was saying. We think of parables like these great sermon illustrations that make something really sticky and they make it, you know, really lodge in your mind. But Jesus' answer to why he speaks in parables is almost precisely the opposite of that. Jesus says, Matthew 13, 11 to 13 says, And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, Jesus' response, he says, The parable is not a way of making things more clear. The parable, in a sense, is a way of concealing. In Mark, Jesus, it's actually recorded that Jesus says, I I speak in parables so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. There's this intention to Jesus using parables. And it is not necessarily to make more clear, but it is so that God delivers his message to precisely whom he is intending to receive it. That is a hard truth of parables. And it is a hard truth of the kingdom. And it's exactly what the parable of the sower is about. See, in this description of why Jesus answers or why Jesus speaks in parables, he's, in a sense, starting to provide his interpretation of the parable of the sower, which is, I'm sowing this same seed, and yet many people will not hear it. And when it lands on them, it will just bounce off. Why? Because they have not been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus continues, as we see in this verse, after he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. He says this very strange sentence that is something we don't think of Jesus as saying. He says, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This from the first shall be last guy, this is a strange statement from Jesus. We often gloss over the things that we have, thinking we understand what Jesus' intentions were for his preaching, and yet when we look at the language that he uses, it's often far more shocking than we give it credit for. To those that have, more will be given. To those that don't have, even what they have will be taken away. Now, that can be a confusing verse when we take it out of its context and we think of it generally. Does that mean that Jesus is saying, the, in my kingdom, the rich will get richer, and even what the poor have, they'll be even more destitute? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, you have to look at the context of what he's referring to. For to the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has, what? Well, let's look at the sentence prior. To the one who has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. If you have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, you will be able to see that the kingdom is of such value and of such glory that it is the only thing that truly lasts. It is the only place, it is the only thing you can place your hope in that will be truly fulfilling and truly rewarding. But those things that aren't the kingdom that you think you have that power and acclaim and prestige and comfort, whatever it may be that isn't the kingdom that you think you have, it will be taken away. So that even these things you think you have, this little compared to the kingdom that you think you have, it will vanish. That's what Jesus is describing. So if you have the secret of the kingdom of heaven, it will lead to growth. And if you don't, even what you have will be taken away. Then he finally makes this more explicit statement as to why he speaks in parables. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. That's how I knew that it was a more explicit statement as to why he speaks in parables. That's called exegesis. That's where you see what's in the text. <laughs> so he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So then, the question is, is Jesus truly speaking in parables so that people won't see? Why is Jesus going around preaching the kingdom of heaven so that, so that it'll be intentionally concealed from them? See, a lot of that is revealed in the first part of this, where he says, to you it has been given to know. How do you know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? It's only if it's been given to you. You see, the Bible does not tell a story of a God who came. This, is, this sermon's going to be really hard, by the way. I should have given a warning or something. But here we go. The Bible does not tell a story of a God who came to save everyone. The Bible does not even tell a story of a God who came to make an opportunity for everyone to be saved. The Bible tells a story of a Jesus to come and save for himself a people that will become his kingdom. That is the story that the Bible tells, which means that the word of God is constructed perfectly to accomplish God's purposes. Which means that when we take into account the whole story of Scripture, that there are some to whom it has been given to know the kingdom of heaven, and there are others to whom it has not. So that when Jesus speaks, he is speaking perfectly to accomplish his purposes. And his purposes are that to those whom it has been given, they will hear 
and they will understand, and they will see the glory of the kingdom of heaven. And to those to whom it has not, they'll see it, but they won't really see it. They'll hear the parable, but they won't really hear. Jesus, in speaking in parables, God, in sending his word, is sending it to accomplish precisely his purposes. And his purposes do not revolve around us. We are not the center of this story. God's purposes, most precisely described, are him seeking his glory, demonstrating his eternal justice, his eternal righteousness. He is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. So when he speaks, he speaks with a purpose, and his word accomplishes perfectly that purpose. What does this mean to those who are saved? It means that when Jesus rescues you into his kingdom, that there is no part of that rescue that you can claim as your own doing. It means when we say that Jesus saves by grace, we really mean it is by grace alone. That when you stand before the Father and you say, praise you, Lord, for transferring me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light of your glorious Son, we can say, only thanks to you has that been possible. What is the distinction between those who understand the kingdom and those who do not? It is that to those who understand, it has been given. It's a gift. The good news is that in our depravity, in the depths of our sin, God has chosen to save some. So that's why Jesus speaks in parables. Not a single aspect of our salvation into his kingdom is out of his control. Jesus conveys this in both the message that he speaks clearly to his disciples and in the medium that he uses to communicate. So Jesus continues on and he grounds the response to, to his parables in a prophecy of, of Isaiah that had taken place hundreds of years before. And he says this, as he describes the response to the parables, he'll describe two responses. First, the crowd's response, and then the disciples' response. So we can see that Jesus is saying, here is the response of those to whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and here is the response to those whom it has not. Matthew 13, 14 to 15. 13, 14, 15. It's got to be good luck or something. Just kidding. There's no such thing as luck. God is sovereign. <laughs> Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of, of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. There's a lot in there. How do you hear but not hear? How do you see but not see? If nature abhors a vacuum, then the human mind is the premier example of that. When we remove the source of all meaning and truth and purpose from our minds, from our thinking, and to say when we remove God from that position, we are left with this incredible vacuum. And that vacuum doesn't just sit there, but we must fill it. We must fill that void. So when we were designed to serve an ideal kingdom, and yet we ignore that ideal kingdom, we are going to fill it with a kingdom of our own making. We will always do that. We will always serve something, create our own kingdom, create our own king. And what our king will promise is, a, is similar to what Jesus promises in his kingdom. Our king will promise an abundant life. Our king will promise meaning. Our king will promise safety and protection. 
And that king can look like all sorts of things that make those promises. It can look like, I know I will have a meaningful life. I know I'll have protection and safety once I achieve this promotion, once I see my children are safe and healthy in this particular type of life. Uh, In Colorado, I think why many people move to Denver is because that kingdom can even be something as general as just achieving a particular aesthetic for your life. Like, if I move to Denver, then on the weekends, the pictures of me will look like Patagonia ads. (laughs) And then I'll know that I'm living with meaning and a sense of purpose and adventure. And so what happens is, now that we've defined our ideal, now that we've defined our king, who we're working for, we determine all the rest of what is good and what is bad based upon that ideal. So this job that you got when you moved to Denver to cash flow your new mountain bike, uh, that's that's just me talking now. Um, It turns out it's more challenging than you had expected. And instead of that being good news to you, Instead of this challenge, you see, wow, this is perfect for me. This job is really stretching me. It's growing me. I'm becoming competent in areas I never expected myself to become competent in. Instead, this challenge of your job is just a bad thing because it's preventing you from getting your Patagonia weekend adventures. That sounds silly when we put it in a sentence like that, but when we've defined our ideal It clouds the way we judge everything else. And the kingdom of heaven is just the same. When Jesus comes in and he says, I am the ideal king, I am the one you you should serve, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, the good news is I'm a great king. (laughs) Such an understatement. There's, you know, most kings, I'd send you out to die for me. Instead, I died for you. I'm a great king. When we filter that through the ideal that we've already constructed for ourselves, it's just bad news. Because serving Jesus now all of a sudden means I am unable to serve this other king that promised such hope and such a life for me. And so in our vision, we can see Jesus saying, I am the king, this is the true ideal, and yet, because we're so clouded by our own kingdoms of our own making, we don't even see it as good. This good news can be right in front of us, and it's not good news. We see, but we don't see. We hear, we don't listen, we don't really understand. So then, Jesus describes the other side. What he says has happened to the disciples, those to whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. It says in Matthew 13, 16 to 17, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. See, this is the difference between those to whom it has been given and those to whom it has not. The disciples have these eyes that can see and listen to these parables of Jesus and hear straight through to their truest meaning, such that when Jesus says, I am the ideal king, they're able to look with a reasonable mind and say, here is the kingdom that I've constructed for myself, and here is Jesus' kingdom, and this one is so much obviously better than the kingdom that I've constructed for myself that it's no question. They're able to see accurately. And we can connect this to that very verse that Jesus started his argument with, with, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. How is it that the disciples have these eyes that can see well, it's not because of their status, because Jesus says, well, for, for truly, I say to you, many prophets have longed to see this, and they haven't seen it. 
It's not because of their righteousness. Because Jesus says many righteous people have wanted to see this and couldn't see it. It's not because of their longing. It's not because of the depth of their desire. Many people have longed to see what they see and haven't seen it. It's been given to them. In the depth of our sin, we are all creating these kingdoms that have so clouded our judgment that our hope of seeing our way out of them, well, there isn't any. Unless our eyes are really changed, unless God gives to us this ability, unless he really comes in and rescues us. You see, when we say that we're saved by grace alone, that feels nice, (laughs) and it should. But we often don't really imagine the implications of that. Because what we most commonly think when we hear we're saved by grace alone, what we really think is, sure, we're saved by grace alone, but ultimately, what had the final say in whether or not I was saved was me choosing God and not the other way around. The distinction between me who is saved and the person who isn't is simply the decision that I made. And so are you saved by grace alone? Or really, have you constructed your framework? Have you constructed your view of the gospel to maintain this position of power such that you are still the one saving you? Such that when you stand before God and he says, what is ultimately the final reason that you are able to come into my kingdom? You say, me, because I decided. Or is the story as Jesus tells it? To where if you find in yourself that you could possibly understand and see the value in Jesus' kingdom, you can say, the only reason I can see that is because I was dead and Jesus made me alive. And I don't know why he did that, but he did. If it's by grace alone, that means when we look at what we are standing on before God, we look down beneath our feet and we see nothing there but only that he is holding us up. That's why Jesus speaks in parables. Because he will be absolutely clear that it is not because of your intelligence, it is not because of your ability to reason towards what he is describing. It is not that you stayed with the parable the longest. It is by grace alone that you might hear the words of his kingdom. So, The parables themselves are this sort of litmus test, right? In our ability to understand them, to truly grasp these parables, Jesus is already doing his parsing, in a sense. By his word, he is affecting exactly what he has purposed to do. So then Jesus provides to the disciples gathered close by, The true interpretation, the one that we are familiar with, of the parable of the sower. And in it we see this understanding of the kingdom. So that we can know what happens when you understand the kingdom of God. So we're going to go ahead and move through this with Jesus quickly, soil by soil. Matthew 13, 18 to 23 Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So, just before we jump into that, we've seen that Jesus provides us with there's two outcomes for understanding the parables. There's either you do understand it or you don't. You hear it, but you don't really hear, or you hear and you really hear. But, There's, you know, 50 ways to leave your lover, as we'll see. Because you can hear and not hear, or truly hear, but there are many ways, and Jesus lays out three, to hear and not hear. 
this parable is primarily a warning. And it's worth saying that Jesus' warnings can accomplish his purposes of rescuing the people that feel warned by them, just as much as his offer of salvation. So, I'll read it again. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So, the seed that happens to land on the path, this is the type of person who has their own personal kingdom so well constructed in such a tight way that the seed, this other word of another kingdom, that there might be another more powerful king worth serving, when that seed is thrown onto that mind, it just bounces off. Because there's no space. See, no, I am so certain that once I finally get married, then I I know that my life will come together in a way that will be completely meaningful and nothing will be able to take that away from me. And when that story is wound so tightly that when Jesus comes along and says, no, instead of that, make me your ultimate goal, you need to loosen your hand of that thing, it just bounces off because it sounds so insane That's one way that we miss the kingdom. When we have such an inability to doubt the positions that we currently hold, the word of the kingdom just bounces off and is snatched away by the evil one. The next soil, Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. See, this is the type of person whose the values of the kingdom that they have established for themselves and the values of the kingdom of heaven, they seem to have this initial overlap. It seems as though, you know, I've always enjoyed being parts of tight-knit communities that have a clear inner ring and an outer ring. And Christianity seems to offer me such an opportunity. Therefore, Christianity, uh, that seems like the way that I should go. I will then be a Christian. I'll align myself with the values of that kingdom until Jesus comes to you and says, I'm going to require you to stand alone with me on this one. And then you see that that overlap you thought you shared between the values of your kingdom and Jesus' kingdom was never truly there. But instead, you weren't serving Jesus as king. You were serving Jesus as a way to get what you really wanted. And when that becomes revealed by tribulation or by persecution, it vanishes. It's like it's scorched by the sun. The way that this is described is like an immediate drop-off because you've only been deceived as to who your true king really was. The next soil, Jesus says, as for, whoops, I almost went to the good soil. (laughs) As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In all honesty, I think this is the most frightening one. Because this isn't an immediate drop-off. This isn't it bouncing off right away. But this is a steady choke from the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. You see, it's easy for us to, to get into positions where we see, we say, you know, I, I know that I need to be pursuing this power and wealth, because once I have power and wealth like that, I'll be able to accomplish such good in the world. And so we pursue it so clearly with this this horizon that we think is pretty high 
of accomplishing great things in the world. And then, over time, as we focused so completely on the power that we thought we could use as a means towards God's kingdom, we realize that it has become our true end. That when Jesus comes along and and he says, you know, you need to raise your horizon a little higher. You need to raise your horizon towards my kingdom, towards not just this power that allows you to accomplish what may be a temporary good in the world, but towards my kingdom, which is redeeming all of creation, realize we're now unable to lift our eyes to that height. See, that's a steady encroachment. That term, deceitfulness of riches. Uh, I knew a guy in college, and he would always ask this because it was clever. Uh, But how do you know when you're being deceived? Any ideas? You don't. That's being deceived. So that's a horrifying place to be. And then the final soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. That's the difference. The word that unlocks this whole text that repeats throughout is that word understands. That's the difference between all of these soils. The one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Hearing and understanding. That's where you're able to look at the kingdom that you have made for yourself and you're able to look at Jesus' kingdom and see that Jesus' kingdom is so obviously more valuable. That's the understanding. So that when you've seen that, when that becomes clear, the option to go back to serving your other king, it just seems unreasonable. That's why we describe seeing seeing Jesus' kingdom clearly as it being irresistible. Because once you've seen it, truly seen it, and understood it, you couldn't possibly resist it. Paul, in Colossians, he kicks off the letter, and he has one of my favorite verses uh, that he starts the letter with. But the language is constructed so weird, <laughs> so, which is annoying, Paul. So, Colossians 1, 5 to 6, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, Paul takes this same theme, and he says, when you hear and you understand the grace of God in truth, there's this inevitable repercussion in that it bears fruit and it multiplies. In the whole world, It's bearing fruit and increasing as people hear and understand the grace of God in truth. There's that critical component of understanding God's grace in truth. And yet many of us don't truly see God's grace as this absolute, complete grace. Instead, we see it as just an opportunity for us to claim for ourselves. And so it doesn't seem to bear fruit. Because when we stand before God, we're still pointing back towards ourselves as the ultimate reason for our salvation, instead of being floored by this incredible grace. So how do we know if we understand? Well, are you bearing fruit? Are you loving? Are you joyful? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you value goodness? Are you self-controlled? Now, here's the hard part. Are you all of those things all at the same time? 
Because it's one thing to be patient. To be patient and not joyful, that's easy. (laughs) That's something that happens to you. (laughs) But to be patient and joyful, that's someone who's living in a different kingdom. That's someone who understands something different. That they've been saved by a complete grace. And there's nothing they can point to in themselves. And so anything good that possibly happens in their life, any hope that they have, their only response to it can be no pride at all, but only a humble gratitude. So do you understand? The parable is meant to show us where we are. It's this sort of litmus test. Do you want to know if you understand? Then look and see if you're bearing fruit. All right. I'm nervous about these questions. Here we go. Yeah, great question. How do you rectify your message with 2 Corinthians 5.15 It says Christ died for all? Or, I mean, John 3.16, uh, for Christ died for the whole world. So the, the process of rectifying those is called, <laughs> I'm going to make light of this, it's called Bible study. But what I mean by that is we need to connect with the, the words themselves so that we can see what is the intention of the author that they're communicating in this. So John 3.16, for example, we can do a cursory study of the term world, and there's uh, uses of that term that are much narrower than meaning everyone. Ultimately, what we have to do is take into account the entire counsel of Scripture and hold these two things that are, that are very difficult to hold and yet which Scripture requires us to hold which are that we, we make the gospel message known to everyone that we possibly can in hopes that we might save some. But we know that just as Paul describes his ministry of being the aroma of Christ, he knows that that aroma will be for some an aroma from life to life. And for others, it will be an aroma from death to death. And yet his ministry was to be the aroma. And then Paul says, who can bear such things? Whenever, well, when, when Paul makes this really clear, that Jesus' death was completely effective in saving, which means those he meant to save, he didn't miss any. Whenever whenever Paul makes that explicit, he, he always talks about his heartbreak. Who can bear such things? I myself could wish I was accursed so that my people could be saved. Talk about someone who'd internalized the gospel. To understand this, I, I, think, I think what happens is um, you spend so much time with a doctrine like this, and what we're talking about is the doctrine of election. And what happens is, is people think they're comfortable with it just because they've spent so much time with it and spent so much time living in circles where the doctrine of election was just taken for granted. But those from whom we learn it in Scripture. Never lost a a heartbreak. But here's what this means. Our truest conversion is a move from seeing ourselves as the center of the story 
in the center of the universe, to seeing God as the center of the story. That's our conversion. And when we see that, and when we learn that our place in this story are means to demonstrate his glory, then we've seen who God really is. And the covenant might be fulfilled that he will be our God and we will be his creatures. The insane news is that a God who is so distant and so over creatures from the dirt like us, for some reason still took on flesh, that he might save some. Uh, so without going precisely to that verse, which I don't have memorized, uh, and working through it, that's, that's sort of a general answer to that question. But if you want to talk more specifically about it, we can. Next question. How do we depict these hard truths to non-Christians without our God appearing to be cold, distant, and unjust to not give everyone a chance to believe? So, um, so a, a couple of things. I, like, thing, thing one is I don't think we need to, uh, like, play, play God's PR team. Like, if this is the truth, if this is the fact of the matter, this is the way that he reveals himself to us in Scripture, uh, then we don't need to, like, like, listen, like, God only chooses some, but you got to meet him in person. He's a super nice guy. <laughs> um, that's, that's not the role. Because this truth is... I was talking with someone earlier this week who is going through a time of, uh, in a sense, like rediscovering the gospel. And it, it's, it's having these incredible impacts in their life. And at the end of the conversation, I said to him, this is why I will not budge on God choosing us. Because if we miss that, then we have, we have no assurance that we could be with him. And so in describing these things and saying, it, 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 what, all we're saying is that the phrases that we use, we really mean. When you drive past the Denver Rescue Mission and it says Jesus saves, when I say Jesus saves, I mean it. I mean that there are dead people and he comes and he makes them alive. I don't mean, when I say Jesus saves, I don't mean Jesus opened a door that you may walk through. No, you wouldn't have walked through the door. He didn't come to make sick people well. He came to make dead people alive. So how do we explain this? We tell the whole story. We get familiar with our own depravity. How do you do that? Try and be holy. You'll be coming into constant contact with your own depravity. And then tell that story. You don't need to be a PR team. You need to tell the whole story. So when you get that God's grace is that complete, I think there's an assurance that most people don't have. And because they don't understand the grace of God in truth, it's not bearing fruit. It's not multiplying. All right, next question. Is it possible that at different times in our life, the soil of our heart changes? Yeah, that's a good question. I, th I think absolutely. I don't think like you're born a rocky ground and you stay a rocky ground. I think that there are lots of people who the word of the kingdom has bounced off and bounced off and bounced off and then all of a sudden 
it begins to take root. And their eyes are opened. And once they've seen it, they can't unsee it. If God's grace is that complete, then we know that it's powerful enough to overcome the hardest soil. All right, that's the third question. So there can only be three. As we are about to take communion, take this time to reflect. Do I understand? Perhaps the purpose of this parable is to serve as a warning that moves you into his kingdom. That move is simple. If you believe in your heart that Jesus was Lord, confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, I hope I'm not mixing those up, you'll be saved. So take this time to search your heart and come forward to a Lord that extends an incredible offer. Pray for his grace that you might respond. All right, let's pray. Lord, you are God. There are none others like you. And when we study your words, when we study Jesus, You make yourself known to us in this way that just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't let our hearts stand on neutral ground anymore. Lord, I pray that you would show us your kingdom and your son as king in such a clear way that it creates in us a conviction of such gratitude that we would turn to you to be transferred into your kingdom so that you would be our only true ideal. Father, that can happen by grace alone. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.